Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse one, it says, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The word of God for the people of God. So around the turn of the 20th century, a German scholar named Martin Kaler described the Gospels, the four different stories of Jesus's Life. He described them as passion narratives with extended introductions. Passion narrative is kind of a, a churchy term for the suffering and the death of Jesus. So what Martin Kaler was saying is we've got chapters upon chapters that are introducing the death of Jesus. But when it comes down to it, that's exactly what these stories are about. And for the last 13 chapters, we have seen this extended uh, introduction leading up to the passion of Jesus, how he would sacrifice himself for us. And we have not been left without hints that this is coming. From the very beginning of the book, we have started to see what was in the horizon of Jesus's ministry. We see that from two different streams. We see that from the stream of the religious leaders who from very early on, they're so upset with Jesus that they begin to scheme and plot that they might kill him. After Jesus, after Jesus heals uh, a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, these religious leaders are incensed. And the text says that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, another probably group of, of religious leaders, how they might kill Jesus. A similar sentiment happens after Jesus goes into the temple and overthrows the tables and says, you have turned this house of prayer into a den of robbers or a den of thieves. The things that you think will save you will not. Jesus is in, in, in this story bringing judgment upon the religious institution of the temple saying, this is, this is not the thing. I am the thing. And it says the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The religious leaders began to ask Jesus, where do you get this authority? How can you be doing this? How can you be saying these things? And Jesus launches into this really weird teaching, a parable 
about a guy who owns a lot of land and he leaves and puts folks in charge of the land. And as he sends people back to check on it, the people that are taking care of the land begin to kill and beat and abuse the folks that the master is sending back to his own land. And Jesus is saying of this, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are the ones entrusted with the land, but they are abusing and they are killing God's people. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. And here in Mark chapter 14, it says the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Now, there's different opinions on how many people would have overtaken Jerusalem during this Passover festival. For Jewish people at the time, and even still, the Exodus and the Passover were huge events of God's faithfulness. It was deliverance of a people from captivity into freedom, from bondage into liberation. It was a story where they had seen God's hand upon them, and this was a huge celebration. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, they were plotting and scheming to kill Jesus, but they didn't want to do it during the festival because there could have been anywhere from, I've read, from 200,000 to millions upon millions of people overtaking Jerusalem at this time. And Jesus, over the last couple of chapters, has really attracted a crowd. Remember when he goes into Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey, and people are like laying down palm branches and saying, Hosanna, this is the king, this is the guy. This is the person that we've been waiting for, and we've seen the religious leaders sneak off and, and kind of quiet themselves and say, this needs to stop, but we cannot upset the crowds or they will riot. So we see this tension that is mounting with the religious leaders wanting to destroy Jesus because they cannot buy into what he is saying. But this is not unique just to the religious leaders. Jesus himself has said time and time again, in fact, he said it three times over the course of three chapters from Mark 8 through Mark 10, I am going to be betrayed, I am going to be handed over, I am going to die, but I will rise from the dead. Each time he says this, his disciples, well, this will be important, his disciples say, no, no, that's not how this story ends, Jesus. You're getting it all wrong. You're going to ride in on a white horse and destroy Roman oppressors, and we're going to be free. You're, you're the one that's going to release us. But Jesus' narrative is much different. But we can see both from the religious leaders who are plotting and scheming to kill Jesus and Jesus himself saying, I'm going to die, that this story is an extended uh, introduction to the passion narrative. But here in chapter 14, it is moving from all of these stories that are putting us into this place, and we are now actually getting to the passion. Over the next two chapters, and we are almost done with the book of Mark, thank you very much, we will start to see how this story concludes. And what we see in Mark 14, 1 through 11 is, is the beginning of this movement towards the cross. N.T. Wright says, from this point on in Mark's gospel, the story is entirely focused on the coming crucifixion of the Messiah. And he says this of our passage, each scene and here he's talking about that beginning plotting of the religious leaders to say, we've got to do something about this. We've got to kill him. And then immediately we're, we're taken into the home of Simon the leper in Bethany and this random woman shows up and anoints him with oil. And then at the end, Judas, 
one of Jesus' friends, one of Jesus' closest crew, the 12, one of the disciples completely turns on Jesus and hands him over to the religious leaders. So we see these two very dark vignettes and in the middle, this beautiful moment of grace and hope. And what N.T. Wright is saying, each of those scenes contributes to the sense that the end is near. Jesus knows it because he says what she's doing is she's preparing my body for death. Judas knows it and the priests know it because they're plotting to bring this to its culmination. And the unnamed woman with the perfume intuitively does the right thing and anoints Jesus for it. Now, what most scholars would say is this woman didn't exactly know what she was doing. She just knew that she wanted to be in Jesus' presence and to take something that was super expensive and to completely lavish it upon him. It's probably not the case that she knew that she was preparing his body for burial, but still the example that she sets is one that's worth emulating. I have to say this too because I'm a super nerd. Um, Mark's version of this story, this story of Jesus being anointed by a woman, appears in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Although in each of those four Gospels, the details that surround this event are very different. It's super interesting to compare them and to see how they're different. And this is going to be important for us. But some of the differences are the setting, where, whose house Jesus is in at this time, the timing in, re in respect to the Passover festival. In a couple texts, it says it's two days before. In one text, it says it's six days before. In Luke, it's actually in the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So the story is placed at different places for different purposes. The participants, they might not be different, but at least they're named differently. Uh, the woman is, is named in uh, the book of John, for example, as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. The anointing is different. In Luke, it's a woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet with uh, ointment and with her tears as well. But here in our story, it's a woman who dumps the ointment or the, the oil on Jesus' head. The identity of those who are disputing, sometimes it's not said who it is, like our passage in Mark. At other times, it's noted as the disciples in the book of John. It says Judas is the one that's super ticked about this because Judas is the one that holds the money and Judas is the one that wants to take her jar and sell it and then potentially steal from it. And the, the cause of the dispute, whether it's because the woman is sinful um, or something different that's going on. These versions are very different and that helps us to see what in the world Mark is doing and why it's important. And here's the big thing that I want you to see. All throughout the book of Mark, and we've read these different stories, we've met unnamed women and the role that they have played, despite the fact that we don't even know who they are, has been massive. Early on in the story, in Mark chapter 5, uh, there's a woman with an issue of blood. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And remember, Jesus is coming into town, and she knows that Jesus is coming into town. And she seeks him out thinking, if I could just touch the hem of his garments, I will be made well. And this is not a woman that's just, you know, kind of 
not tried different avenues. She has spent exhaustive resources and money searching out doctors and trying to be better, but now she, she sees and she understands that if she could just be in the presence of Jesus, she would be made well. It's that really weird story where in, in the midst of a huge crowd, she goes in there and she, she touches him and Jesus feels power leave his body, which is very strange, but her faith heals her. She provides an example of what it looks like to seek after Jesus with everything that you have when you're at the very end of your rope because he is the one that can deliver. A couple chapters later in Mark chapter 7, there's a Gentile woman who has a little girl who is possessed by a demon, and she is advocating for her child. And this is a weird Jesus moment because she first approaches him saying, Jesus, please do something. And he says something kind of esoteric and weird, like, first let the children eat and then we'll give the crumbs to the dogs. You're like, whoa, that's intense, Jesus. And she almost comes back and I'm like, no, you didn't. You will help my girl. Okay. There's this, this interchange between Jesus and this woman where she will not accept no for an answer. And we see from her an example of faith and tenacity that in spite of all odds, even in the face of Jesus seeming to be shut down, she says, no, you can and will help. When Rachel was preaching, I thought she did a great job. I got a chance to finally listen to her sermon uh, early last week. She talked about a poor woman who goes into the temple and takes two small copper coins that are worth about a penny collectively. And while everyone else there is dumping in their money that doesn't really hurt their bottom line, I liken it to uh, when Kate and I had just gotten married, we adopted a kid from World Vision or whatever, and we had the picture of our kid on the fridge, and every month, auto-draft, 20 bucks would just leave, but we wouldn't know. But when we looked at the fridge, we could either feel really good about ourselves because we were helping somebody, or we could feel kind of guilty because it was just something that we were able to do, but we didn't even know it. The difference with this woman was those two copper coins that were worth practically nothing, it was the equivalent to everything that she had left. And she gives it to the temple treasury. What we see from this woman is an example of trust and hope. And here in our passage today, we meet an unnamed woman who shows up in Jesus' presence and anoints him with oil. The text says, while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She broke the jar. She didn't have to break the jar. The ointment got in there somehow, and conceivably it could have gotten out in roughly the same way. But what she was communicating was, take it all. Every last bit is yours. And this wasn't just some cheap knockoff perfume that you get from Walmart, although that's fine if that's how you do. This was a year's worth of wages. This was a, a year's salary that she was giving over to Jesus to anoint him. She breaks the jar and she pours the perfume on his head. 
There's a text in Psalm 133 that talks about oil running down Aaron's head, down Aaron's beard. It's like he's soaked in this oil. And from an Old Testament perspective, this is what you do to kings. This is how you anoint royalty. And here we see this woman who is taking this expensive stuff and saying, Jesus, it's yours. I don't need it. I couldn't do anything better with it than to devote it to you right here and right now. Now, Mark doesn't tell us how she showed up or why she showed up or what's going on in this. The way that Luke tells the story is a little bit different. It says that this woman has been uh, sinful and that she understands because she has been forgiven much. I like that because at times I don't know if I quite understand because I still live in that world of quantifying sin as I'm a pretty okay guy. I haven't done anything totally crazy. And sometimes I carry that into my relationship where I haven't felt the, the real gravity of the forgiveness that I have through Jesus. But this woman, for whatever reason, she has, and everything that she has in this life is, is given to him. This inspires the observers to say, what are you doing? We could sell this and give it to the poor. And Jesus responds, leave her alone. And this isn't like the Jesus who's just really meek and mild and leave her alone, children. Come on to me. This is like ticked off Jesus, like step back, get out, leave her alone. What's wrong with you guys? Don't you get it? Don't you see what she's doing? This is like Jesus going into that teacher moment. You all have been in the classroom, right? When your teacher goes from the person that you, you love and adore into this, oh my goodness, he's freaking out. You've seen how that, this is the moment where Jesus seemingly freaks out on the people around him. What she has done is a beautiful thing to me. He goes on to say, the poor you will always have with you. Now, this is not Jesus saying, I don't care about the poor, whatever. Give stuff to me. There's an assumption here. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, do your duty. Give your stuff to the poor as well, but understand the moment that you have with me here and now. Don't read this text as, ah, well, I'll get the poor people tomorrow. This is not what this text is, is teaching at all. In fact, that seems to be like the baseline obligation for Christians is to care for the poor and the oppressed and then to do things on top of that. I think sometimes in our community, we've, we've forgotten the on top of that sort of mentality where we're content with the bare minimum because that shows that we're okay. Like for Kate and I, it's looking at the fridge and seeing the picture of that person, we're okay. We're doing something, even though it doesn't hurt us, even though we don't even realize that money is gone, even though it's not like we are putting ourselves out there for the sake of the kingdom. We've forgotten to go sometimes above and beyond the call. And sometimes that's monetarily, and sometimes that's with your time and with your home and with your presence and with the things that you have that are intangible to offer the people around you. Jesus continues, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. And truly, I tell you, I think this line is really interesting because we actually don't hear of this woman too often, but Jesus says, truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Some people think that this might be like a, a gravestone sort of thing, that, that 
when she dies, that this is the thing. Remember, that's what she did. For other people, it goes beyond that where the stories of Jesus include, to some degree, how she gets it. How she understands what it looks like to follow Jesus with everything that she has. One scholar says, as Mark narrates the account, the woman who acts as servant to Jesus is the servant who receives the highest word of commendation. Other than Jesus, in Mark's gospel, she is the greatest character in the story, an unnamed woman. Throughout Mark, the author is like throwing the disciples under the bus. You guys are idiots. You don't get it. Jesus keeps having to say over and over, listen, guys, here's what I really mean. But this woman comes out of nowhere and she gets what the disciples fail to get. At that meal where, where she just kind of busts in and starts dumping ointment on Jesus' head, like his disciples are there and it's potentially the case that they were the ones that were indignant, like how dare she? Again, proving themselves to be people that don't understand what Jesus is all about. An unnamed woman understands what the disciples don't. An unnamed woman is setting the example to follow. An unnamed woman provides evidence of an inverted kingdom where it's not the people with the money and it's not the people on top and it's not the people who are number one that get in, but it's the lowest. It's the servants. It's the one who dedicate themselves to others tirelessly without praise at times for the sake of the gospel. And she gets that. I don't want to get on a soapbox but I will say this. I feel as though over the last five years of my life, one thing that I have had to do in conversations time and time again is to convince young women that they have a voice, that they have a platform, and that they can serve the kingdom in great ways. I hope that what we're not missing here is how Jesus empowers sometimes the most unlikely of people to become people of influence, to become people who understand the gospel and can share the gospel and can do great work. And I hope that that's not limited to one gender over another. The book of Mark, even set within a very patriarchal society. Jesus is still picking 12 men to be his, his crew. But yet, throughout the book, there's this undertone of, they don't get it, but the ladies do. And I, for one, would love to see that sort of attitude to continue on, where it's not just sitting back and allowing other people to do, but it's understanding and claiming your own role in the kingdom of God. This story then shifts and uh, it, it raises the issue of, of Judas. I don't have much to say about this, but I can't think about Judas without just being captivated by the imagination. What if, what happened? 
How did this relationship get so fractured? What took place in this exchange between Jesus and the woman and the people at the table where in the next scene, Judas is leaving so fed up, so tired of this Jewish homeless rabbi that he says, screw it. I want to hand him over and I want him to be dead. What happened in his life to get him to that point? And if we could take one step farther into the real dangerous territory, how many of us are one bad prognosis away from saying, screw it, I give up. He's not even real. How many of us are one bad breakup or one bad relationship or one bad whatever where we say, forget it? I'm cashing in my chips. Yeah, I've been with Jesus for a while, but it's not worth it. It doesn't work. These things that we talk about, restoration and reconciliation, I don't see that in my life. What are the things in, in our lives where it could be where we're just one step away and what would keep us from taking that step? This has been a tough week um, in our extended community with people just getting some pretty tough news from doctors, from uh, just with regard to relationships. And, and I've seen over the course of not just the last month or so, but over the course of my ministry and the life of this church and even the last 10, 15 years just following Jesus, I've seen my friends and I've seen the people around me get to a point where it's just like, this is a straw and I'm, I'm done. And I never quite understand what it is that pushes them over, but I'm always left with that question. What can we do? How can we be more present? How can we be the people that fight for these folks? How can we give them space in a way that allows them to see Jesus and his goodness, to invite them back into the story, not to give up, to stick with it, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of cancer and death, even in the midst of divorce and brokenness, even in the midst of poverty and joblessness, even in the midst of these things that we deem to be the straw that breaks the back where we just walk away? How can we be a community that grabs people by the arm and says, walk with me as I'm following Jesus. The needs that you have, I'll meet them. I will be Jesus to you. How can we be a community that lives that out in a way that makes sense, in a way that's compelling, in a way that's tangible, where it's not just the picture on the fridge and the automatic $20 auto draft, but we actually get dirty and we get into people's lives and we carry their burdens, and we allow Jesus to do the hard work of reconciliation. Can we be that kind of community? This story, it introduces multiple perspectives. At first, we've got the religious leaders that are just trying to kill Jesus, and these are, these are the elite, right? These are the, the Christians, if you will. These are the church folks that just say, I can't tolerate him. And then we see this, this woman who just shows up out of nowhere. We don't really know her story, but we see what she does and we see how Jesus responds to it. And we see her, her image of humility, her sacrifice. 
and we see just the desire that she has to be with Jesus. And then we meet Judas, a friend who betrays his guy to the point of death. This story has multiple perspectives and it begs the question, I know that Rachel in her sermon said this was kind of a silly pastory type thing to do, but which one of the people in this story resembles who you are today? Are you the, the churchy Christian person that's just so ticked at the establishment and Jesus and what he's doing that you just, you're just done with it and you just want him to go away? Are you the broken, humble, sacrificial woman who just wants to give everything to following this guy, knowing that he's your source of life and hope? Or are you the person who's been in the game for a while and you're one bad experience away from giving it all up? Which one of these images provides an example of the person that you want to be? That's a very different question. Not the who are you now, because a lot of us bring our stuff and we've got our baggage and there's things in our life that are kind of putting us maybe on, on a bad side, but who do you want to be and what do you want your life to look like? I want to leave you with that question. And I don't want you to just jump to the easy answer of, oh, I want to be the woman who gives it all away. Because when it comes down to it, do you? Now, I think that the Christian life is a journey and we're at different places at different times. And I do think that we can be processing and thinking and just and growing as, as we go. But I hope that the end game for us is to be that. Where the things that we have are disposable. Where the relationships that we have trump the stuff where we're able to give away for the sake of others, where we're able to make financial decisions that seem stupid to help someone else who's in a terrible spot. My hope is that we can move from the people who might be angry and jaded and just one bad experience away to being someone who wants to stick it out, wants to learn what it looks like to pick up your cross and to follow Jesus wants to understand that on this road there will be difficulties, but that will not keep us from following Christ. And I hope that that is who this community is becoming because I am certain that if that is who we are trying to be, following this unnamed woman as she follows Jesus, that we will see the fruits of that in our community, in these pews, in the months to come, where we will see people coming to know Jesus, where our baptisms will not just be one person on the beach, but they might be five or 10 or 15 because our stories are impacting the world around us. And I'm hopeful that when we look at texts like this, we will be inspired to have those difficult conversations and to invite people in to life and hope that's only available through Jesus. And when we get that, the stuff will become such a secondary issue that I really believe we will be able and we will find ourselves in situations where we can be used 
in ways that we never dreamed possible. Let us follow the example of the unnamed woman as she follows Jesus with everything that she has and is able to give that up for him.